We are in Psalm 16 today. We're taking a little break from the book of Acts. We've been there for 28 weeks, so it's a good time maybe to take a little time away from it. This morning we're in Psalm 16, looking at verses 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol or in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the paths of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures excuse me, forevermore. Perhaps if you've walked along a dirt path or along a beach and you look back and you retrace your steps and you look at your footprints, you'll notice that the impression that your foot made or your shoe, the impression that it left differs, differs in depth, differs in clarity. And so it is when we read the Old Testament, the footprints of Jesus run all through it. And in some places, those footprints are very clear. In some places, those impressions are not quite as deep. And we have to search them out. A little more. You might ask me, do you do you read the Old Testament looking for Christ? And my answer is yes, because he said he's there. If you seek me, you'll find me. And the good thing is, the fact is that he says he is there means that I don't have to fabricate anything. Because when you begin to look, you begin to see clearly over and over and over again. And so we don't have to force the issue. And where we are today is one of those deep, clear impressions. So much so that Peter, in his first sermon at Pentecost, would refer to it as proof of Christ's resurrection. So, as we look at this, beginning at verse 8, we see the first statement, and it is this. I have set the Lord always before me. And we ask the question then, as this is a psalm of David, can we look at this and say this was literally true of David? I have set the Lord always before me. Was it true when he sent Uriah to the front lines to be killed? Was it true when he sent for Bathsheba? Was it true when he ordered a census, a numbering of the people against the command of God? Now some might say, well, it was the bent of his life. This is what he attempted to do. But we know he didn't do it perfectly. And he didn't do it always. So who did? Only Christ. 
Only Christ can make this statement literally and have it true. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And how did he do this? What does it mean to have the Lord always before him? Well, first, it can mean to have the Lord before us always. It can, always, it can mean first that it can mean a fear or reverence of the Lord. Second, it can mean a strict observance of the law of God. But thirdly, for Christ, it went deeper. In the gospel, Jesus is proclaimed as the one to look for for salvation. He's the one to look for, to look at, for faith, for hope. The one we are to look to, to trust and depend upon for eternal life, for abundant life, for full salvation. Look unto me and be saved is the command. In this light for Jesus, then the Father is the object that is always set before him. The one he looks to during the whole time of his earthly ministry, his earthly stay. Christ in his humanity. He would always be looking to glorify him. The glory of the Father was the ultimate goal of all he did, of all his actions, of all that he commanded. He set about to fulfill that covenant made from before the foundation of the world. The covenant of grace, the covenant of redemption. He set about to give witness to the power and the truth and faithfulness of God. And the Father was the support and the encouragement of the Son while in his flesh. In the midst of joys, there was comfort in the presence of God, and even more in the midst of difficulties and distressing circumstances. So this is also then a sense in which Jesus literally set Yahweh, the Father, before him. And this is further shown in the statement that follows, because... Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I shall not be shaken out of place. The image of that word shaken would be that like if you understand the old buildings and the old columns that were on the buildings and maybe one was holding up a corner of the building and there was an earthquake and that column was moved out of its place, thus making the whole structure unsound no matter what came Christ was not moved it tells us of a particular closeness he was always at my right hand the closeness of the father and son he's at my right hand to give direction provide help to protect and defend 
This idea comes up in several places. Let's look at a few in Psalm 109. Psalm 109 and, and verse, verses 30 and 31. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. In Psalm 110, we read, something also directly about Christ and in verse 5 the Lord is at your right hand the Lord is at your right hand and in Psalm 121 and, and verse 5 the Lord is your keeper the Lord is your shade at your right hand and so I shall not be moved he says I, I will not be shaken That is, I'll not be taken off course no matter what. The course that is set before me is the one I will run. Because he's at my, my right hand, no matter what are the threats, what are the conspiracies of men, the temptations of the devil could not bring him off course. The prospect of death, nor the bearing of the wrath of God could not move Christ off of his course. In Isaiah, we have a couple of places that are called the servant song that point to who Jesus was and makes clear pictures of him. One we find in Isaiah 42. <clears throat> in Isaiah 42 and verses 1 through 4, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax will, he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged. He won't be shaken till he established till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlines shall wait for his law. And then if we turn over to Isaiah chapter 50. And beginning at verse 5, the Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from their shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord will help me. Who is he who condemns me? Indeed, 
They will grow old like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. So we have this constant theme with Christ, with the protection of the Father upon the Son. And, of course, we're speaking of Christ in his humanity, not in his deity at this point. So this certainty, this knowledge of where he is and who he is and who is with him brings a result in life. And we see that in verse 9. Notice how verse 9 begins, therefore. So therefore tells us that in light of what is said previously, here's a conclusion. So in light of what is written in verse 8, we see the conclusion in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. To think of the Lord on your side. If God be for us, who can be against us? Does that not bring some gladness to your heart? He says, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices because the Lord is always in view, always with him. And for Christ, we can be sure that it's a very real and even literal sense. And so my heart is glad, he said. Though a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, there was also the joy, the inward joy. We read in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in his spirit. All due to the Lord's presence with him. And further, he says, my glory rejoices. Now, what do we make out of that statement? In essence, when he says, my glory rejoices, if you look at the Hebrew, it's telling us, my whole being rejoices. We know what Jesus sang, don't we? We have no question as to what it was when Jesus sang praises, what was he singing? It wasn't Hillsong, I can tell you that. He sang psalms. When they finished the supper, when he gave the bread and the wine and instructed the disciples, this is my bread and this is my body, as they finished, what did they do? They went out and they sang a psalm. And there are many references that are translated song in the Old and New Testament that actually mean psalm. It can be translated psalm. In fact, it is psalm. And so Jesus sang in his human humanity, he sang praises to the Father, and when he did that, he, he did that through the psalms. My glory rejoices, my whole being rejoices. My glory rejoices gives the sense of glorifying the Father and singing his praise with joyful lips. This is also a joy then that the believer can know. Again, we can't get beyond the idea of the benefits of our union with Christ. 
And so we who are Christ can say this for ourselves. For the spirit of Christ dwells in us. But it's not that way with the ungodly. It's funny how we change words. And we seem to want to soften things. And so instead of saying ungodly anymore, people will say, well, they're non-believers. If you don't have Christ, you don't have God. And therefore, if you don't have God, you are ungodly. That's, that's as plain as you can get. If you don't have Christ, you don't have God, so therefore, if you don't have God, you are ungodly. But so many, so many are intoxicated with the world, caught up in a spirit of thoughtlessness, stupefied by the world. And Calvin says, these will never experience true joy or serene mental peace. They rather feel terrible agitation which come upon them and trouble them. This is not true for the ungodly, that they are never at ease, they are never at peace. Even those who take ungodliness to extremes, who say, I don't want to be who I am biology, biologically. I want to be who I am by what I identify. And so maybe they'll take pills. Maybe they'll get an operation. But in the midst of that, there's never a peace. There's never a comfort. If you notice, even if they get legislation that says, okay, you can go ahead and do that, it's not enough. It's never enough. And why is it that way? Well, because if you're doing something wrong, if you're doing something that doesn't make sense, if you're trying to be something you are not, then of course you're going to feel like you're out of place. So what do you want to do? Since I feel bad, I need to have a lot of people who identify with me. And so if they don't, I will try to make it an issue that is forced upon them to identify with me. You know, you would think, okay, if you had a strong sense of what you were doing was right and your principle was right, it wouldn't matter who came along with you. But the fact is, they need to have that idea that now something's behind me. I've got the law behind me. I've got this behind me. So therefore, I can feel legitimate. But you'll never feel legitimate if you're illegitimate. It just can't happen. And why do we see such a, a world around us every single day of, of people who are just ready to fly off the handle in a second because there's no peace. 
There's no rest. There's no comfort. There's always a need for something more. We went to uh, the CVS store in Lillington this week. That's a big time out, you know. We're going to go to Lillington. We're going to go to CVS. Then we'll, then we'll go to the food line. We'll have a big time. But anyway, uh, if you go into CVS, walk in, and on the left-hand side, as far as you can see, are cosmetics and grooming products. Products. It's not one shade of lipstick, it's 250. It's not one shade of blusher, but dozens of shades. And, and it's not just one or two companies, but dozens of companies. Well, yes, I tried this one, but I wasn't happy with it. So I'll go to the next shade, or I'll try this one. I don't know how you women do this. I mean, give me a bottle of Brut and a can of Right Guard, and I'm home. I'm, I'm done. I, it, it. But how y'all can just look at all this that's laid out there and say, that's the one I want. And then all of a sudden, well, that's the one I wanted this week. But next week when I come back, I'll get the other one. We can certainly see the unsettledness that exists in this world by the unhappiness that people have with their appearance. And the idea that, oh, I can look like this. I can look like Taylor Swift. Why would you want to? What's wrong with the way God made you? It is so true. Without Christ, there is no peace with God, and therefore there is no peace in the heart of man, and we find it always going on. The peace, a calm, an assurance of good that goes beyond this life. And so he says, my flesh will rest in hope. My flesh will rest in hope. And so that's the second or third part of it, is the confidence in death. My flesh will rest in hope. Well, what's the reason for resting in hope? Verse 10, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol or the grave. Now, Sheol is, is the literal translation of the Hebrew. I know in the King James it says hell, for thou will not leave my soul in hell. But the word here is Sheol, and it commonly means the grave the abode of the dead. So if we read it in the King James, we get the idea, well, well, he's talking about he will not leave his soul in the place of eternal torment, but that's not what's being gotten here. Uh, this is uh, not speaking of eternal torment because Jesus didn't go to eternal torment after his death. We know that. For he says to the thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me, where? In torment? No, but in paradise. So Jesus didn't. What did Jesus do just before he gave 
his last breath. What did he say? He said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That doesn't sound like a soul that went to hell. Jesus went to the invisible realm of souls where he did not stay. And on the third day, his soul returned to his body in the resurrection. And that gives us a picture of what is to come for ourselves. Though our bodies may lay in the grave, our souls will not be with our bodies, but then at the return of Christ will be the great resurrection where body and soul will be reunited again. We were never created to be without a body. The body was an important part of our creation and we will be reunited with a body for eternity, built for eternity. The soul never dies. And it was not laid in the grave. What is true is that his body was laid in the grave. And we can see the differentiation that is made here. He says, you will not leave my soul in the grave. Then he says, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So there's soul in the first statement. There's body in the next because a soul does not decay. A soul is eternal. So what does decay? The body. So we see clearly in that second statement, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He's speaking of the body at that point. So the body was laid in the grave. We see the clear delineation between soul and body here. The soul doesn't decay. And Jesus was raised before his body saw any corruption. He was raised before that would happen. Remember Mary was told about the birth of Christ, of course, and given that announcement. But in that announcement, the angel says, therefore also, that holy one which is to be born will be called the Son of God. That holy one, the only one to come out of the womb without original sin. That holy one, that holy one Christ who would live out his earthly ministry and never sin, which means he lived in a body that he never sinned in. There was never any corruption of that form in his body. So Jesus, who never sinned in his body, saw no moral corruption. So here, in the grave, he would see no physical corruption either. And this was only true of Christ, and no one else included David, because even when Peter is preaching from this text in the second chapter of Acts, he is saying, well, we know David is, is dead, and we even know where his grave is. And so it's a pointing to Christ, that Holy One. And that title could only be applied to the sinless one. And then he finishes it off. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we go not only to the resurrection, but we go to the ascension. 
that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So it moves us to the, uh, to the ascension and to the exaltation. Well, very quickly then, a few things that we can take from this. This passage, as we have been reading, as we said, would form a major proof in Peter's first sermon at Pentecost. It will show us that old adage when it comes to the two testaments of the Bible. The new is in the old concealed, but the old is in the new revealed. And here, this passage, verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 16, revealed to us in Acts chapter 2, so we would have no doubt when we read this, it's not David, it's Jesus. When it comes to the Testament, the new, again, is in the old, concealed, the old is in the new, revealed. But we have two Testaments in one Bible. And we can't have a Bible if we take one or the other away. We need both to have the one Bible. But secondly, the confidence Christ had was not just for him alone. And again, we can't get beyond this, as, as Sinclair Ferguson said, once you see union to Christ in Scripture, you'll not stop seeing it. Or you'll not stop seeing it. It's there. It's everywhere. It's so necessary for our union with Christ. These things that he says of himself, we can say of his people. We can enjoy that same confidence, that same hope. As Christ was raised, so shall all who believe. Our soul will never see the place of torment, but rather enjoy a paradise. So also, too, we can set the Lord always before us to see him as our best and highest good, to see him as our, our owner and our gracious benefactor. He's made us joint heirs with Christ and above all, our sure guide. The third, all our joys in this life are empty and defective. But it says, in the presence of God is fullness of joy. Fullness. Our, our pleasures here are momentary and they are transient. But at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isn't that interesting? At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who is at the right hand? Christ. When Christ says when he returns and the holy angels gather in his elect, what's he going to do? His sheep, his people are on his right hand. Those who are not are to the left. They go into eternal torment. Those to his right enter into the joy of his salvation. To be at his right hand. And think of it, if we want to do a, a physical understanding, if Christ is at the right hand of the Father, that literally then his left hand would be facing the Father, but his right hand is open 
Open for who? For his people to be with him at his right hand. And finally, we may talk often of how Jesus, in taking on humanity, was humbled. In fact, we talk about his taking on flesh as his humiliation. Well, let's just turn it around for one moment. When Jesus took on flesh, when he took on humanity, what Jesus did for humanity, how he raised humanity to such a level in his flesh. For we realize, don't we, that Jesus did not shed his flesh in the ascension. But in his glorified body, he is before the throne. He literally ascended with his body. And so what? We know from that, how's he going to return? In his glorified body. Jesus took our humanity all the way the throne of God for our sakes he glorified humanity we get this from what he did where he is and the truth of scripture let's stand together for prayer